Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Today's guest is the author of Practices for Embodied Living, Hillary McBride. You may remember Hillary because I covered her other book, The Wisdom of Your Body, on the podcast back in November of 2021. And this book is much more of a workbook-style approach to living an embodied life. We're going to talk about what living an embodied life means. We're going to talk about trauma and its effect on the body. We're going to talk about how we live in relation to others. We talk about so much in this show. You're going to want to take a lot of notes. We cover a lot of topics, and she gives a lot of great recommendations for books, resources, and at the very end, even shares a free eight-part podcast series that she recorded that will help you understand your own body in response to religious trauma. I definitely took a bunch of notes throughout the course of this conversation, some of it completely illegible because I was writing so quickly. Uh, but there is just so much value jam-packed in this conversation with Hillary McBride. Let's go ahead and get into today's episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. And Hillary, welcome back to the show. It's been two years. I, I've told a couple repeat guests recently, oh, I thought it was a few months ago, or I thought it was a year. And then I start looking back at the old episode, and I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And it's like, wow, November 2021. So just over two years. What's new? Well, a bunch of things are new in in the world for sure, and a bunch of things that are new in my own life. But be, even before we get to that, I'm really resonating with how actual time and felt time are right. so different, and what it's like to review everything that's happened, all the things that are new, and go how how did all that happen in just a few months? Mm. When yeah. in actuality, it was more than that. So I'm I am with you, and. Now that I'm a parent, I've got a two and a half year old. It feels like, yeah, really my concept of time has changed so much because the challenging moments feel like they last forever. Yeah. <laughs> Are kids a challenge? Is, is parenting challenging? Yes, I know. This is probably new information. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. And, like mm-hmm. everybody with, when you have kids, everyone's like, oh, this is the most tricky part. 
And then you like every stage you go into, they're like, this is the most tricky part. And you're like, wait, I just think all of it's kind of tricky. It just changes yeah. what's tricky about it. So. And you know, maybe that's a good way to intro into the concept of embodiment and all of the things that go along with that, because I find like tricky, we often so so readily define as the things externally that are happening. And for sure, there's elements of that that evoke that that sensation or those qualities or those feelings in us. But to change our relationship to to that construct in such a way that it allows us to see that how we define something as tricky is based on what it brings up inside of us allows us to feel like we have some maybe a place of agency, something to do something about, some place to do something about, and. And a way to be in relationship with feelings that allow us to say, okay, even if the circumstances change or don't change, I can build a relationship with what it's like inside of me when something is hard. And I can learn to tolerate that. It's It reminds me a little bit of work that I did even before becoming a parent on my relationship with fear and how I realized so often I was making choices about what felt right or didn't feel right mm-hmm. based on if it brought up fear or not. And the kind of disorganization of the inner compass that often goes along with growing up in evangelical contexts or like high demand, high control religious environments where we think if there's fear that's bad or, you know, if it's a mark that the spirit isn't in us, that we're mistrusting God. And and so everything around our relationship to that feeling can get disorganized. And for me, everything shifted when I was able to see that I could be in relationship with fear. Mm-hmm. And that meant I didn't have to make choices based on if fear was there or not, because I knew I could tolerate it. I knew that I could be with the sensation of fear, of terror, of nervousness, everything along that continuum. And therefore, I could make decisions based on who I wanted to be in the world and what most aligned with my values and not avoidance of or trying to perform holiness or something like that. Yeah. I love that you just mentioned that because that's something a, a couple, I mean, probably two years ago now. Um, I was helping co-host a business podcast for a while and stepping in as kind of a guest host. And I kept having conversations about like, you know, basically what you want to be when you grew up. And I was asking people who were doing something totally different than what they had decided to be when they were in kindergarten. Imagine that Uh, you want to be an astronaut or a, you know, police (laughs) officer. And then you realize there's more jobs available. And, um, one of the things that I started questioning myself was, okay, the way my life looks has changed several times over. I think it's far more important to determine who you want to be than what you want to do. And like that, especially coming out of a fundamentalist background where you're defined as clearly one thing and everybody is that same thing. uh, That's a difficult, difficult journey. Um, And parenting is a really cool thing because it, one of my friends said recently, it's one of the best personal development experiences is having a child. Because it makes you address things that are secondhand to you. But as you start explaining them to your kids or you start reapplying things that were done to you as a kid, in that context, you start realizing areas in your own self that can change and develop. And um, but yeah, it's a it's a really life's an interesting journey. <laughs> it's it a is. long story. Can, can I actually just stay with what you said for a second yeah. and ask what what is the the who that you wanted to be when you could detangle from the what you wanted to do? So yeah, I mean, so the I'll start with the what I wanted to be. So I always wanted to I always wanted to direct movies. That was always my mm-hmm. thing that I wanted to do. I still have a little bit of that in there, but it, but I think what I've really narrowed it down to as far as who I want to be is I want to tell stories that matter. And I I was looking at my 
life from, I mean, I picked up a camera when I was in like, I was six years old, seven years old, playing with my friends, making home videos and setting up shots and trying to copy what we thought were like exact replicas of these blockbuster movies we were watching. And, you know, over the years, it was different cameras. It was a little bit, I was an artist when I was younger. I would draw pictures. I would get up and use crayons and like early before everyone woke up. And I, you know, later it was a little bit of writing and then now podcasting. And it's like, the tools changed and the direction changed and the focus changed mm-hmm. and the types of stories changed, but I was always wanting to tell stories and I always wanted to share them in a way that resonated with everybody. Like I loved seeing that. And, um, and so that's, I think that's something when I start thinking like, how do I want to live the rest of my life? What do I want to be known for? Like, that's the stuff that really resonates. And mm-hmm. in advocacy, that's what it is. Like, it's telling stories that matter, and it's using gifts that could be used for a lot of different things uh, to kind of spotlight important issues. Um, and so, yeah, telling stories that matter is kind of what I've been telling myself. Um, mm-hmm. I've said it in a couple places, but that's kind of my um, like descriptor of like who I want to be. I want to tell stories that impact people in a in a positive way. I'm appreciating the meta narrative there of you telling the story about telling stories and reauthoring, yeah. <laughs> kind of Inception, reorganizing huh? the narratives. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, thanks for adding that piece in. Yeah, well, I I know we have so much to talk about. I'm I do want to remind people because it's been two years, and so mm-hmm. people have either forgotten or maybe haven't listened to that episode. A lot of new people have come in and listened to the show in the last year. Um, we're going to talk a lot about embodiment. So I think it's probably a good idea to start with defining what that is. I think we started the episode two years ago the same way with this definition. Um, But in a a sentence or two, what is embodiment? Yeah, what a good task to make it a sentence or two when I've spent years of doctoral work (laughs) researching Now I've written two books. (laughs) Yes, yes. And there was an embodiment textbook before that. I mean, there's just so much work that I, so many things I could say about it, but to be concise, the operational definition of embodiment that I love to use is the lived experience of being a body engaging with the world around us. And that really has two important bi-directional processes. There's the experience within me. What is it like to be me? What does it feel like to be me? How do I show up in the world? Uh, what's the quality of my experience of aliveness? Can I notice my own bodily information, my sensing self, and make meaning of that in a way that brings me more fully into life? But then the other side of it is how is culture in a dialogue with my body and with bodies in general in such a way that it shapes the very in the moment physiological experience that I have, my nervous system reaction, my sleep habits, my my hygiene, my my feeding habits, my ability to reach towards others to bring care close to my physical body when I'm in pain. So much of that is shaped by and is constantly shaping culture, family of origin, the sociopolitical context around us. So it's always those two things, the lived experience of being me as it is shaped and being shaped by the landscape culturally around me. Oh. And, and listening to our past conversation you mentioned this idea of being you're you are a body you it's be a body you know just mm-hmm. have a body and i think for someone who's listening right now and is going okay i'm hearing a lot of things i'm curious how this aligns with me you know like <laughs> people are tuning in cuz they grew up in 
religious environments that were extremely toxic. And I, I think the reason that I resonate so much with your writing and in our past conversation is your body is treated like a third party many times within those environments. And so I know for women I've talked to in those environments, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of external judgment toward their body. Uh, for men, there's a lot of fear. I think fear is a common denominator among everybody. There's a ton of shame around the body. I think that's probably a common denominator too. It just it just masks itself in different ways. Um, but the first time I ever read your writing saying, you know, oh, you are a body, changes that dynamic completely. Because so often, you know, you're taught your body is going to tempt you if you feel this way. Your body is something that's shameful if it's seen this way. Your body not covered this way is, you know, and you start realizing reading your work. Like when I have an issue with my body, I really have an issue with myself. I'm inseparable from that body. And so um, I wanted to talk a little bit of that third party experience and the judgment that people feel. Um, so in the fundamentalist religious environment, you have women who are expected to look a certain way, carry themselves a certain way. Don't carry yourself too much this way because then you're a temptation. Don't not carry yourself that way because then you're not going to find a good husband. Really that, I mean, the speech from the Barbie movie of you're supposed to be not too big, not too small, this way, this way. Um, how do you go about actually finding the truth about your own body when you've been painted mm -hmm. a narrative for so long? Mm -hmm. And what a what a mysterious and confusing endeavor. I think I'm just appreciating as you're saying that, wow, the impact of that question that that's a, a beautifully phrased question. And yet as people ask it in their lives, it's often um steeped in profound confusion and pain and dis identity disorganization. And it's not a light question to interact with. It often means grappling with years of trauma, complex trauma, dissociation, profound mistrust of the self, right? Again, if the self is the body, then as you mistrust the body, you mistrust yourself. And, and not only is it grappling with that, but also the years of messaging that's been introjected that says it's a horrible, dangerous, bad, awful, evil thing to trust yourself, to want to be in relationship with yourself in some way. You shouldn't have a self. Mm -hmm. So I want to acknowledge the legacy and the landscape of complex trauma that gives rise to this question. And one of my favorite ways of reflecting on this is to think about how relationship to ourselves as a body is something that we can really, we can draw on other relationship frameworks to help us make sense of. And what I mean by that is we have a toolkit inside of us, most of us, that allows us to orient towards other people in a way that kind of makes sense of distance and rupture and repair and complexity and pain and you know needing to try to understand each other and the arc of relationship over time that's not expected to emerge as completely intimate and all-knowing from the get-go. Mm. Like just imagine, you know, you and I, we've done a couple of these, but we don't really know each other very well personally. And so if we were to to build closeness, we'd what? Spend time together. There might be times when you're telling me something deep about your inner world and I would have to go, is it kind of like this or is it kind of like that? And then there might be a time where you ask him something of me, you are in need and I miss you. I miss you completely. And there's a rupture and, and you communicate that to me through silence or distance or through loud 
you know, volatile, uh, you know, emotionality and kind of intense expression of hurt and sadness. And then there would be a responsibility on my part to mend that and go, whoa, I missed you. I am so sorry. Can, can we build trust again? So even think about that arc that I'm describing of proximity and time and trying to understand each other. The Merleau-Ponty in talking about, you know, the, what he calls the four existentials as a philosopher, one of the first people to put embodiment on the map within Western philosophy and what I would say white philosophy. He was one of the first people to say, Hey, there's, you know, the body is actually the location of existence. There were other people who, around his time who were saying that in the fifties and sixties. And, and he was saying, actually, you know, as a, as a being, we exist across time in space, in relationship as sensing selves. And when we miss any of those dimensions, we miss something fundamental about our humanness, about beingness. And what I love about his existentials is that in naming that we are temporal, that there's a temporal arc to our beingness, we remember that existence and selfness transcends a singular moment. In -hmm. fact, we couldn't even completely define what it means to be by a single, you know, a sliver or a slice of my existence. You take me on a Wednesday at noon, post-lunch, having had a difficult day, and it's a different me than New Year's Eve with my family, mm-hmm. you know, I've had some champagne, right? Whatever the thing is, it's like, these are different Hillary's and time and the arc of time is what shows us the complexity and dimensionality of who we are. Okay, so how does that relate to your original question? The idea is that you're not supposed to know who you are and how to be in relationship with your bodily self in one moment. You're not supposed to be able to immediately trust a relationship that has years and years and years of distance and rupture and fragmentation and actually being fed the lie that 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 other, or in this case, that body is the enemy. Like think of the amount of reconciliation that needs to be put into simply being in proximity, let alone trusting and having mutual beneficial dialogue that's um, supportive and rich and and fluid and like poetry and like mysticism. So I think that what we do is we start with repair. I think we start with acknowledging the ruptures. And for me, the practice has often looked like letter writing to my body saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were told this. I'm sorry you were told this. I'm sorry that I believed it. I'm sorry that, you know, such and such. And and here, even in my language, even saying, I'm sorry, you is kind of (laughs) playing along with the dualistic divide of mind being different than body. But when that's all we've been handed, work with it. Let's go with it. Let's, Let's use the dualistic divide to help us understand relationship in such a way that we can begin to mend. And over time, like with any good relationship, you spend enough time together, you tell enough stories, you have enough experiences, and and the distinction starts to dissolve a little bit. Like my best friend, whenever we spend time together, I leave and I have all of her expressions and she has all of my expressions. <laughs> and people will go, oh, that sounds like oh, so-and-so. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, she lives, she's alive in me right? Her memory, her mannerisms, they're in me. And, and I tell the story of our friendship by how I laugh and joke and speak. And so that that begins to happen. But over repair, over time spent, over naming the injuries, 
like good trauma therapy. And this is often what people need when there's this profound mind-body schism. Good trauma therapy always involves going to the place of the wound Hmm. and telling the truth about what happened, telling the truth with our emotion, with our body, with our imagery. You, You cannot mend what you ignore exists. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We're talking about healing. We're talking about time. We've talked about those two things a lot since even the minute we both hopped on this before we hit record. Time has been a theme. Healing's been a theme. I'm curious how much of this experience is active repair where you're intentionally doing exercises to improve something or to improve your relationship or to, you know, make a difference. You're actively doing something versus, you know, I'm thinking about time in relation to healing. How much of it is simply collecting new evidence? Because if you're going through someone else's lens for a really long time, you know, I think of so much beyond just, I mean, just every area of my life, so much of it was lived through other people's lenses of who I was supposed to be and who I was. And a lot of those things I simply believed. And I feel like now 10, 11, 12 years later, I'm just constantly collecting new information about, oh, I like this and I thought I wasn't supposed to, or, oh, I enjoy this and I thought I wasn't supposed to, or, oh, I don't feel, you know, I was always told that this sensation or this feeling was negative, you know, even emotions, you know, I was always told you're too emotional, you're too this, you're too that. And now I'm realizing some of those things, they can be detrimental if you don't understand them. But I think like I've learned too, like those things can also be strengths. And because of the way they were framed, they never were. (laughs) They were weaknesses Mm -hmm. for me. So how much is active versus kind of just actively collecting new information and just listening to yourself, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in what you're saying there, even too about like cognitive processes and developmental neuroscience. Like when I think about what we give our attention to, is also active. It's right. also a choice. And and then there's kind of the other complexity, which is that sometimes we're not even aware what's around us. We're mm-hmm. not even aware what kind of data points we're picking up by sim- but but simply again, if you remember what embodiment is this often unconscious iterative process between my my actual, you know, this the matter of my being and the cultural landscape around me who we're around and the stories they tell about who they are and who I am will also impact me in a kind of unconscious process. And so maybe the choice becomes, which stories do I surround myself with? Which people do I expose myself to so that when I'm unconsciously absorbing through osmosis their narratives about personhood, like, is that what I want to go to go in to me? And I think you're you're highlighting something that's kind of complex that maybe in in spaces of deconstruction and reconstruction and religious trauma we we might not know how to grapple with, which is like the the question of of what is a self 
And is the self an individual self? Is is there actually no such thing as an individual self? And I think the the story that so many of us were handed around salvation was that individual salvation is everything because you are an, indiv- an individual. And really the story that you are an individual starts to break down even when we look at developmental neuroscience, when we look at embodiment, when we look at mirror neuron circuitry and empathy and compassion and nervous system co-regulation and culture. There is it's a really uh, Western white supremacist kind of androcentric perception of aliveness and personhood to believe that we're distinct from each other in such a way that I could choose. And choosing allows us to feel at least for a time being like we have some agency, particularly in contexts where we didn't have agency. But there's actually something I think comforting in realizing there were some of these things that we couldn't have chosen. And there are going to be lots of things in our life that we are exposed to that impact us, that we would have never put ourselves in contact with. And that ultimately, though, some of those things could be really good and beautiful and around us. But but we're constantly being impacted by social landscapes, whether we know it or not. I mean, think about even social media. <clears throat> in social media, what's happening is we're seeing images that we think we're seeing as a means of what? avoidance, pleasure, stimulation, and they're actually shaping on a structural level the assumptions that our brain, our specific brain has about what ideal images of bodies look like. And so even if we're not looking at them and saying, I'm going to put all my attention into trying to be like this body and valuing this body, simply the exposure to the images is crafting something about Mm. how I feel about myself and how I feel about you. And so I think that that thinking about like, who am I? I think we need to relax some of the rigidity that was handed to us in the fundamentalist context, which made us feel like we had to put all the pressure on ourselves to do it right and to know the thing and to be responsible for everything inside of us all the time. Otherwise, we experienced eternal conscious torment and realize we get to be in relationship with people and that will shape us forever. And there's beautiful and painful things about that. And there is a much more permeable boundary of self than perhaps we were handed. And maybe the things that we do have choice over are, can I just try to create more spaces where people who have values that I would like to have are around me? Or I'm just allowing those things to be in the background, or I'm spending time seeking out people and resources that seem to know something that I would like to know. Because through relationship, through social context, it's going to shape what it feels like to be me. So kind of that collective group of people around you. And online, it's tricky because you have algorithms that are curating more. It's I, I, I think that's kind of social media kind of shows fundamentalism at its rawest form, you know, and I, I always say like everyone's a default fundamentalist, like we tend to assume our way of thinking is the right way of thinking. And, you know, we need to find other people who think like us, like-minded individuals is the nice way to say that. Um, I am kind of curious, one of the things I've been thinking about, because people talk about deconstruction all the time, and I've heard a lot of people say on every side of this coin, the coin only has two sides, but sure, every side of this (laughs) coin, that it's okay to deconstruct. It just matters where you end up. And I've heard that statement over and over and over again. It's okay if you deconstruct. It Mm. just matters where you end up. And 
a few months ago, I was talking with a friend about this. And one of the things that I was kind of thinking is I just said, I don't know if this is, if this makes sense or if this is right. But I said, I think the problem and the reason so many people are so like loud and angry on both sides of this topic is that I don't think you should end up like, it seems like the point of life is to constantly evolve and learn and grow and mature, whatever label you want to say on that. And when it comes to like the collective self, I guess my question would be, how do you find communities? How do you find communities that are similar in interest, but also not like cultishly devoted to exactly every single principle. Because I've noticed like finding friendships and relationships, it can be difficult to find people who will stay with you through that journey of constantly changing and developing. So is it something where you're you should cycle through <laughs> relationships or change relationships as you change? Is it something where you should try to find a certain group that's just focused on a specific area and not cover other areas with those people? Like how do you go about doing that without just finding yourself locked into the right wing or left wing or fill in the blank with whatever group you want to put yourself in? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I think it's so important to have relationships of so many different kinds that span different lengths and different ways of interacting about different content with different processes as a means of continually enriching us towards more and wider and less certainty. And in a way that really can only happen, as we're talking about here, when we continue to be stretched by people to see perspectives that exist far outside of our own. And, you know, I think the the challenge with that and the, you know, maybe to bring it back to right where we started is, can I tolerate inside of me? self-comfort that comes with conflict, Mm -hmm. that comes with not feeling understood and saying, hey, can we try again? Or, hey, you missed me, or I'm not getting you. And there's something that you know I'm noticing is uncomfortable inside of me when you hold that position, but I want to know you and I want to know more. And I want to feel like I can really crawl inside of of what it's like to see the world your way, just so I can know you, not so I can change you, Mm -hmm. just so I can know you. And it it takes an incredible amount of fortitude and affect tolerance and emotion regulation and perhaps courage to to be able to stay with the discomfort of being in relationship and proximity to people who see the world differently than us. And so again, when we bring this back to embodiment, the question can be how how do I tend to what's happening inside of me? So that, you know, to compare it to my example earlier, I don't have to make choices based on what I'm afraid of or not afraid of, or even I don't have to make choices based on who I'm like or who I'm not like. And the caveat to this, I think, is that sometimes based on marginalized identities and folks who have to live in dominant culture in such a way where they're interacting with power structures that have like an an insidiously traumatic impact on their nervous system, it's so important to be with people and have spaces with people who who get that lived experience. Like that, there's actually empirical evidence to so show that that's a protective factor against what ends up being almost like a form of complex PTSD for folks who are constantly exposed to lived experiences, to realities, to social structures, to power dynamics, 
that communicate to their body, you're unsafe and you're not wanted. Hmm. So to be in proximity to people who are like actually soothes that distress. And those are people who probably don't have to actively seek out difference because they're living in the world, right. interacting with so many different intersections of identity and feeling like, oh, I got to speak your language. Again, here I am having to adapt. So I think this might be for folks who have been incubated in a social development narrative that says, be afraid of people who are different and think different and and be afraid of, of anyone who challenges your worldview. Perhaps this means actively seeking that out and then learning to feel like we can tolerate what's inside. And, and the process of that relationally is not always smooth. And I don't think that that means that we're doing it wrong. Um, I think that when we are able to figure out how to have relational skills where we can listen before we jump in to give opinions, where we can we can be curious instead of fixing, solving, saving, or advising, as Parker Palmer, Palmer says. I think that when we create spaces where we actually ask people to stretch us hmm. and we assume on some level that that's a good thing, that that there might be some relationships that can go there with us and there might be some that can't. And I don't think that means that we're bad or other people are bad, especially if we try to show up in a good way and we saw what people offered us as yeah. like a lesson or an insight into, into the world or into ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Less certainty is a scary thing for, I think when you initially step into it, it is, especially when you come from a rigid black and white kind of system, it's it, certainty is easy. Like I always say, like, I think the draw of fundamentalist beliefs, and we can apply this to any fundamentalist belief, black and white belief, is that it tells you exactly what to do in every situation. Yes, no, you know, fill in the blank. Um, there's always one right answer to every question. And if you don't know, it's not even relevant to you because there's too many yeses to be worried about. Um, so I think stepping into less certainty, I know for me, was very scary. And now I find it very freeing to be able to say about topics I don't know, or mm -hmm. I don't know yet, or I'm constantly changing my perspective on this. Um, but it does take fortitude. You mentioned the word fortitude, and I think that's a good word for it. Because um, there's times both with other people, but like you said, that's a mirror of what happens internally. A lot of times we struggle in dialogue with ourselves to work through these things. Um, speaking of fortitude, speaking of the stress involved with that, in your book, you talk about um the difference between stress and trauma. And I find myself at time, I find myself at times getting frustrated when people use I would say buzzwords that are real things like triggers or trauma or to label anything that's hard, difficult, frustrating, painful even. Um, and I'm curious if we can talk about the difference between stress and trauma. Because some people will just, mm -hmm. on the flip side, just cut off conversation because, oh, it's a little bit hard to talk about. And I think right. that's a dangerous place to be too. Because again, you isolate yourself into this bubble or maybe just yourself. Um, how do you determine the difference between stress and trauma? And how do you um, decide whether something's worth pushing through or stepping away from and setting a healthy boundary? Yeah, great question. So I think my my understanding of stress and trauma is sits somewhere in the midst, the middle of uh neurophysiology and phenomenology. There are elements of our nervous systems and how our nervous systems respond 
to stressors and stimuli and memory and uh, give us the energy and the intensity to to manage things that are difficult and overwhelming. And then there's, you know, the phenomenological piece of this, which is every person has different lived experiences and what, what your body, what causes your body to shut down and what causes your body to be overwhelmed, even if it's what you're remembering that was overwhelming and how unconsciously your nervous system says, okay, that reminds me of that horrible experience. Guess what? We're out of here. Full dissociative response. Right there's there's this a little bit of um, mystery in here because every person and every body and what they've been through is different, and our bodies tell the story of this mm. melange of you know programming that's wired into us through evolution, and then everything that we've lived through and what our ancestors have lived through as well that's epigenetically changed us. So there's a there's a bit of complexity and mystery and phenomenology here, but what I would say. I step back and try to simplify it is that stress is our body's natural, good, wired in response to give us the resources to face challenges, to meet demands, to get our attention, to mobilize us into action or to make a change. And so there's a very healthy and good thing that happens that we need to have happen in order to to exist, to live, to face realities. In fact, Kelly McGonigal wrote a book about this a little while ago called The Upside of Stress and and really covered something called the stress mindset theory, which is all of this research that was done, Ivy League institutions that showed that the the story people tell about their stress actually changes if the stress is bad for them or not, physiologically, based on specific biomarkers. So a good example of that, it, as far as I translate it, would be If I'm about to walk onto stage with a 5,000 person audience and give a talk that I feel mostly prepared for, but a little bit underprepared for, (laughs) it would make sense if my body would be giving me some energy, right? To do this big thing, but also saying like, Hey, are you ready? This is kind of, this is kind of a big deal. Like, do you, or do you want 5,000 sets of eyes on you? Are, Are you ready for what could happen if you fail because you're unprepared? And I could look at that energy and go, wow, my body's telling you this is important. It's time to focus. You're going into you're going into game day, right? Like yeah. this is you need some extra energy to face this and I can put my hands on my body and I can say, "Thank you, body. This is important. Do you really want me to be get the message? This is a big deal." Okay, I'm paying attention. Whereas the other side of this, which is the stress is harmful mindset, is we're like, "Ah, what's wrong with me? What's wrong? I can't I can't this needs to go away. This needs to go away." And kind of we, we get distressed about the stress. And the research showed that people who get distressed about stress actually have poor health outcomes because they're actually adding to the stress, right? There's like a, there's a, there's a feedback loop that's happening, which is actually creating the sense that I'm in danger. My body's endangering itself. And this is a problem. So we've got stress, which we could say objectively, actually we need, it's good. You can't, you know, handle that maneuver in the car when someone cuts you off really quickly, unless you have the reaction from your physiological system that says, grab the steering wheel, turn it, do this thing to keep yourself alive. Trauma is, yes, there's this kind of, there's a long-term chronic piece to it as well. But in a moment, what we would say is trauma is, is when you're actually not connected to resources anymore and your system gets overwhelmed and you are, you're disconnected and powerless. So that specific moment neurophysiologically often is connected to a dissociative response. 
it's connected to a shutting down, a, a complete powerlessness, a trapped experience. And again, why this is kind of complicated is you know, there's very, very well-known research data that shows if you put two people in the car and they get into a car accident, the person who has chronic childhood stress and has experiences, adverse childhood experiences that are related to, let's say, abuse growing up, and the partner next to them who had a pretty typical development, and they go through the same car accident, that the person who has the childhood trauma is going to have a different response to the car accident than the person who doesn't. And so what we see is that, you know, in that moment, in that car accident, there is one person sitting there and they're having panic. And there's a next person sitting next to them who's having a full endogenous opioid, opioid release mediated dissociative experience, who's not remembering, who's not even verbal at that point, who might be totally glazed over and have no sensation in their body whatsoever. And so we could say, yeah, that was a really, really awful moment. But what makes it trauma? Well, probably a mix of things, right? Like what happened before that? What is their nervous system living with? And then also what the literature shows is what happens after the stressful experience. So did was there a chance to process it? Did people come around? Did they support? Did they shame? Did they blame? We call these post-trauma experiences or post-trauma effects that that there's there's the moment, but then here's this arc of time we're talking about. Again, there's a stressful experience, but really what makes it trauma is what happened before and also what happened after in as much as what happened during. Yeah, that affects our ability to process it. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, that... And now I'm stressed. As you say this, I'm stressing, thinking about if I stress too much when I'm stressing. Uh, <laughs> my the overthinker in me is like, okay, hold on. Yeah, you just um, got another thing to worry about. <laughs> but am I too stressed right now? Um, so it sounds <laughs> like stress can be something you can tap into positively because it's a direct thing that you can say, okay, I'm experiencing this because I'm about to do this, and instead of looking at it as this is my body turning against me. It's something that it's trying to tell me it cares about me and is protecting me in this sense. Whereas trauma, it sounds like there's, it's hard to even identify where the signals are coming from and we're completely disconnected and not in relationship with our body in those moments. Um, I, I, I'm curious to dive just a layer deeper and I know we've got like 10 minutes and I have two questions that could probably be entire podcasts connected to this. Um, so let's take five minutes and say, with this in mind, a lot of my audience has clearly been through extreme trauma. Many have developed chronic illnesses related to that trauma. And I've followed quite a few, and it's a constant learning experience for me. And so I want to ask this. I don't want to assume what they feel, but based on what I've read from blogs and from what I've heard on podcasts from people who've talked about it, a lot of them have expressed things that to me sound like oh, their body is against them, or it feels like they want to do something, but the body is literally in rebellion against them and doing things that it, it shouldn't be doing. And that, you know, it's a, it's an illness for a reason. It's not, it's not healthy. Um, I'm curious for those listeners, like, how would you encourage them to feel embodiment and be connected to their bodies, even at times where Perhaps their body is not acting in the way that you know they would normally expect or want it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just five minutes on that topic. We'll just yeah, run, we could, run through. You're right, we could spend hours on this. It is 
it's so interesting to think about even the, the concept of illness and what is illness because so much of what is illness is this pathology lens that we put on the body telling the true story of what the body's been through. And our ability again to come back to this central theme in our conversation today of time is that often our bodies are not done telling a story mm-hmm. of what we lived through, but we have been socialized to think, and I point to my mind as I say this, we've been socialized to think we should move on, that it's a bad thing that our body is continuing to say what happened wasn't okay. So even the flip on this to say, I I would love for us to reorganize our idea of what is illness and conceptualize it at times as our body continuing to tell the truth about what was not okay or what happened or what we lived through. And so even that angle, I think, can be, again, disruptive, but also healing to say, and I, this is you know something I practice regularly because I have chronic conditions, and to put my hands on my body and say, you can tell the story of how awful that was as long as you need to. And unlike everybody else in that context, I'm not going to shut you up. I'm not going to tell you you have to stop speaking. I'm not going to tell you that it never happened, and I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't that bad. You get to keep saying that as long as you need to. And every single time I will listen to you and I have made a vow to say, I believe you, you can keep telling me. So think about what that does to interrupt the cycle that our body is still in because our body is communicating often through these chronic illnesses. I was in profound stress and it was too much and it flipped a switch. It altered something. And then I became unsafe to myself because my, you know, I didn't know my body didn't know my tissue didn't know what, what's safe, what's not safe. Is this, am I, is it okay to be me? Is it not okay to be me? And actually I should say what I think about a lot of autoimmune diseases that come out of faith-based contexts is that is a very, very smart body because that body is doing exactly what that community told it. It had to do. It's trying to get rid of itself. It's trying to make it go away. And that's the party line that was handed to every single person in those contexts. Your body is bad. It gets in the way. And guess what? The body listened and was like, great, I'm going to try to get rid of myself because I'm a problem. And so for us to recognize like, this is, this is just like people being good in a context that told them how to be good. Like Mm. you, you actually, there's nothing wrong with you in the sense you're doing everything you were told to do, but being able to come back to ourselves and go, okay. I, I'm allowed to exist. My body's allowed to tell the story that it needs to tell that that is often the place where the healing starts to happen because so often in these contexts, there's denial of the trauma. You're not allowed to name that it happened. You're not allowed to name the impact of it. You can't even have feelings and everything always has to be for God's glory, including your own suffering in some way. So For us to say, I am not going to self-silence and I'm going to allow the story to be told. It's kind of like the, think back to the comment we were having, we were making about stress. Like you have stress, but then you can have stress about the stress. It's like we can have an illness and then we can have this whole other reaction to the illness, which adds more to this feedback loop to say I'm unsafe because we're constantly shaming and judging and belittling ourselves. If what we could say is, okay, I allow myself to be ill. I allow my, I allow the symptoms. I allow my body to tell the truth about what I went through is in a way finally proving to ourselves that we are out of the environment 
that denies our reality. I like that you mentioned the pathology lens because I think it's something like mentally, physically. Um, one of the quotes that I heard, I forget where it originates, originates from. I've heard a lot of people repeat it since, but this idea that there's no abnormal response to abnormal situations. And mm-hmm. um, and that's why I said, even phrasing the question, I try to be careful to say it's acting differently than what expectation is for it to act, or you're existing exactly. in a way that's different. Because I catch myself all the time judging someone else's experience <laughs> based on my experience. And so it's easy for me to go, that's not that big a deal. Why is that bothering you so much? And then on the flip side, I'll have people say that to me and I go, well, you don't, you didn't experience what I experienced. So like, who are you to say that? And so like recognizing that too, is like, there's things that are going to happen in a result to an extreme, stressful, traumatic, you know, uh, I mean, abnormal situation that are going to look abnormal, but that's a perfectly normal response. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that ever since I heard that it's changed a lot of perspective on just these types of conversations. Yeah. Um, we have three minutes, so let's end super practical here. Um, one of the best things in your book, I feel, is where it talks about building bodily resources. And it's something that um, a trauma therapist named Claire Horner, who I've had on the show before, um, she gave me advice that I said changed my life, which is go out and take, she asked, "What do you? when do you feel most relaxed? I said, it's when I go outside and I take walks. And so she encouraged me between interviews, go take walks. And so I literally started doing that then. It transformed the way that I go through my day. It's become the thing I do to regulate, to reconnect with myself, to reconnect with the natural world around me and not just the computer and the microphone and all of the stressful things that come with it. Um, so for me, getting up when when I feel trapped and walking around, like you see in the book, that's what I've been doing. Um, and I love that you put that kind of label on it or establish that as a tool. Um, there's a lot of other bodily resources for people listening. Can you just give some practical bodily resources or ways to develop those resources that people can take if they end this episode right now, which they're going to in two minutes, cause it's going to be over. Um, you know, what should they try or what are some tools they can try to use to kind of regulate themselves and reconnect with themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, one that comes to mind immediately is our breath because our breath symbolically is always telling us we can let go of things and we can bring things into us. So even thinking about my inhale, what do I need more of? Can I imagine breathing that in? What do I need to say goodbye to or sit down? Can I breathe that out and doing a few rounds of breath? I think breathing is also really helpful when we look at it from a mystical perspective because everything alive is breathing in one way or another, including the trees and the soil and whatnot. So to remind ourselves as as that we are part of the family of things can be something we do through breath. I also love using up energy. And so when we're noticing, when we're noticing intensity in our body, I think, you know, the, the, the read at first blush of emotion regulation skills would say, oh, you're, you're dysregulated. So regulate yourself by calming yourself down. And actually our bodies intuitively know how to calm down if the energy that they're giving us to fight the problem is gone. So instead of fighting with that energy and that motivational drive and the intensity, use up the energy. So if you have some agitation, squeeze your muscles, use it up, do some jumping jacks. You also don't have to have particular levels of ability or mobility to do this, right? Just where you are, you can squeeze your muscles or you can tense or you can lean into certain parts of your body and feel like you allow the energy to increase in a way. Again, 
obviously this might make you feel a little more stressed at first, but instead of trying to get the energy out by, by softening everything, try to get it out by using it up. And then your brain actually goes, oh, I guess we got away from that threat because we used up all that energy instead of like, why are you trying to make me calm down? I'm in the presence of a bear that's trying to eat me, right? To use the energy up. And I think touch is another interesting one. So our bodies naturally release oxytocin when we experience skin to skin contact, including our own touch. So our ability to touch our own bodies, to hold our faces, to put our hands on our chest, to put our hands on our belly, actually skin to skin, right? Wrapping our arms around ourselves will create a soothing experience. And and often what I like to do with that is like a little bit of rocking because whether you were rocked as a kid, you, you deserved that, you needed that. And so some of us will have the body memory of rocking being soothing. And some of us will get to make that memory of finally getting the thing that we needed that we never got. So using a little bit of movement, using a little bit of touch, that's our body knowing how to tend to itself and us consciously to your question or your statement earlier, like choosing actively how to repair our relationship with our bodies by, by seeing that our bodies can also be a place of comfort and strength. Yeah. Love that. Well, I, I really appreciate this conversation. It went by way too quickly and uh, hopefully it's not another two years before we do another one. Um, for anyone who's listening, be sure to grab a copy of, I mean, both of these books are fantastic wisdom of your body, but recently, um, the practices for embodied living. And I know it's a, it's a book, but it's, it's a, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a, it's a very like a workbook journal, but it's for those watching, you can see it's very visually interesting. I appreciate stuff that I can go through and like visually see and look at and think about like your diagram of the staircase and everything. I just sat there staring at that and just thinking about that in relation Mm -hmm. to my own experience. Um, But definitely go pick it up. Listen to this episode a couple more times because there's things I'm going to, I wrote a bunch of uh, words that you said down, a bunch of books that you recommended. Um, There's a lot of great resources, but I really appreciate you doing this and sharing. Um, The last thing I want to mention, you did a podcast on this topic, specifically um, Holy Hurt. You just yeah. talk about that for just a brief second and where people can sure. find that. Yeah. So I, over doing years of research related to spiritual trauma, wanted to uh, put together all of the information that I'd learned in a free resource. So it's a podcast, but really it's almost like an audio book in a way. And it was produced by Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries, whose work I love and support. I think they're doing great work, but it's eight part series exploring what is spiritual trauma how does it impact us? How do we heal? What about when we're implicated in it? What happens mm-hmm. when we are perpetrators of spiritual trauma and and looking at that in individual and kind of cultural ways? So my hope is that in in listening to it, that you have something that you can come back to over and over again. It's almost like I've heard it described like a radio lab style podcast instead of like a typical conversational back and forth. So I wrote it basically like a book. And um yeah, again meant to be taken slowly on your own time, super information dense and and hopefully full of hope as well that, yeah, that the injuries that we carry from the religious and faith context that we come from don't have to define our identity anymore. Love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's show and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Eric. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, 
please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.